I'm Joseph Marx, and this is EconoPolitics, the official podcast of the Economics and Politics section of LASA. Each week, we engage with section members and professional colleagues working in the region and dealing with many of the same issues that we follow. Our aim is to promote greater dialogue and creative synergy among all. Welcome to today's show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to EconoPolitics. Today's guest is known as o mais brasileiro dos texanos. He is, of course, Brian Winter, editor of America's Quarterly. Brian has a long track record following Latin America, and we are delighted to finally have the chance to chat with him and perhaps get a recipe or two of his famous asados and churrascos before the show is over. Welcome, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having Ryan, me. Ryan, we have a long list of questions, so let's jump straight into it. As you know, our audience is largely composed of scholars and experts on Latin America. So with the brand new administration in Washington, perhaps you can tell us how non-career officials are chosen for Western Hemisphere positions at the State Department, National Security Council, etc. In the past, there seems to have been plenty of people with experience in Cuba, Central America, but surprisingly, not very many with expertise in the region's big countries, and very few coming out of business or academia. I wonder why that is. Well, it's a great question. I, I wish I had definitive answers, but my theory is that you know, there tend to be generations of people who come up through the ranks, uh, especially when they're coming from uh, the foreign service officer's position. And, you know, you had a generation that was really formed in the 1980s uh, that came up during the era of the, you know, the Cold War and particularly the wars in Central America. And those people are now kind of in their 50s and 60s and I think it's safe to say that some of them never really stopped seeing the region through that lens. Um, so that's kind of one group of folks. And that, you know, they, they, these tend to be the ones who were very motivated by, you know, issues like um, you know, the fight against socialism and the fight, you know, kind of a, a almost a permanent distrust of the last left, rather, even when they're from the democratic left. And, and that just reflects the ideological cleavages of that era that, you know, was kind of the formative years for them. I think you have a newer group now that is, I, I identify with more myself. I mean, I'm, I'm 43. And, you know, that's the group that came up in a post-Cold War environment. It's also the group that came up during the 2000s, which was, you know, for the most part, a great period for Latin America, especially for the countries of, of South America uh, that had, you know, the most commodities exports and therefore did the best during those years when China was really driving demand. And those, you know, I think folks who are part of that group, we certainly have our own limitations. <laughs> um, but we tend to look at, um, you know, the region more through a developmental lens. Uh, it's a period that has mostly, or at least for a very long time, was a positive period. And so you know, I, I'd say they have they have a different view. Um, as far as, you know, your question about why don't we see more folks from the academic space, of course, there there are exceptions such as Arturo Valenzuela probably being the most recent one, but it's true, you know, I mean, the I, I worked for a portion of my career with Fernando Enrique Cardozo trying to help him write a book, and 
I always saw how, you know, how what a what a how well received he was in certain academic spaces because he represents sort of the dream of a lot of folks to, you know, kind of rise to the top of the political field as well. And for whatever reason, we haven't seen that as much in some of these senior diplomatic positions. Right. Right. Brian, given your privileged vantage point at the Council of the Americas, and for the benefit of our listeners in the region, how, how do major Latin American focused ecosystems, uh, business, academia, media, etc., in cities such as Washington, New York, Miami, LA, Houston, possibly Atlanta, how do they compare in terms of their influence on Latin American policy? Well, Joseph, this is a question that I've been learning a lot about. Uh, you know, I was a reporter uh, for 15 years. Ten of those, I was based in Latin America. I was based in Buenos Aires, uh, then Mexico City, and then five years in Brazil. And since 2015, I've been in this position as a, a vice president at the, at the council. And the council has offices in you know, our headquarters is in New York, where I'm based, but we're also in Washington and in Miami. And it really is true that the, the Latin America-focused crowd is different in each place. Um, you know, New York, I'm sure it will not surprise people to hear that that's more business-focused, but it's, it's more than that. I, I think it's a less, again, a, a group that's sort of less moved by ideology uh, in the sort of traditional left-right sense. You go to Washington and, and you know, things inevitably get through that political lens, also a greater concept. Obviously, that's where the embassies are, and, and they're civil society, sometimes an audience for those in New York. In Miami, um, you know, that that crowd is, is changing. I mean, I think there's the side of Miami that we saw in the, um, in the 2020 election, uh, you know, very clearly with the, the, the way they impacted voting habits and that's that's part of what part of the scene down there. There's also you know, country managers of multinational corporations that work in Latin America. A lot of them spend Monday through Thursday in region, uh, and then they're they're back in Miami, kind of for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But it's also changing as we speak, right? I mean, I, th there's a big migration of private equity and kind of others in the financial crowd down to Miami at the moment. Um, and so I think that's gonna, I think that's gonna change that, that, that group and kind of what their interests are dramatically over the next couple of months and years. As far as the other centers you mentioned, I mean, I, I there's very strong um, councils that look at foreign relations in, in Chicago, in Houston, in LA and San Francisco. But I, you know, I, I'm from Texas and I, I, I'm always skeptical of, of kind of East Coast centrism, right? Um, I'm always skeptical of this sort of East, East Coast centrism, but I, I, it really is, to me, those centers, at least as far as Latin America focus is concerned, they don't really rise to the same level as, as what we see in Washington, New York, and Miami. Right, right. Brian, looking at Latin America at the moment, there are a few unavoidable issues, uh, the main one being Venezuela. Um, I know you're not necessarily a Venezuela expert, but uh, where do we stand? And in your opinion, what are the next steps uh, regarding Venezuela? 
Well, that's a really tough question. And I, I, as you say, I mean, there, there was really a, you know, there was, there was a lot of energy around the Venezuela topic back in early 2019 when you had not only the U.S., but also Canada, the EU, and a lot of governments around the world, um, including it around Latin America, recognize Juan Guaido as, as legitimate president. And we may never know exactly how close um, Guaido came to, you know, either toppling the Maduro dictatorship or uh, negotiating the way or, or convincing people to take a path that might lead us back to democracy there. But everybody who I talk to who follows Venezuela closely thinks that Maduro is in a much stronger position now than he was uh, two years ago, even a year ago. Of course, he now controls the National Assembly. So I, I you know, I've, I've always said, um, very, very pessimistic sounding, but I've always said that, you know, the real model that Venezuela has been trying to follow, of course, is Cuba. And Cuba's been Cuba for more than 60 years now. And that's kind of the time horizon for some of these, for some of these dictatorships. And once they get in, they're very hard to get out. I think now with the Biden administration, I think there's, I, what we've seen so far is really not a big departure in approach compared to what Trump was doing. Um, Blinken, the Secretary of State, has indicated that they're going to continue to recognize Guaido. Uh, there may be some sort of effort to undertake some kind of negotiations, but I also think that this, this group that's in the White House and in the State Department fully understands you know, the potential uh, pratfalls of that. They understand that it, it may just be a trap um, because traditionally all that Maduro has really seeked to accomplish with negotiations is to, to buy time or to waste time, right? I mean, to create the impression that he's interested in negotiating when all he's really trying to do is continue to weaken and divide the opposition. So I, you know, we may wake up one morning and, and see a change there um, led by the military, the Venezuelan military, uh, more than likely. But I, I, I'm very skeptical. I, I'm, I'm concerned that we're not going to, you know, as somebody who believes in the cause of Venezuelan democracy and is horrified by the humanitarian crisis there, I'd like to see change for the good. And I, I just, I don't, I don't think we're likely to see that uh, for a while. Great. And Brian, your thoughts on the recent elections in Ecuador? Well, Ecuador is fascinating, right? I mean, this this um, election now with the runoff that we're going to see between uh, Yacu Perez and uh, Andres Arauz, and it was funny, I, I felt this almost this instinct then to say Yacu Perez on the left and then say who was on the right, but both of these candidates are on the left, and but they're different kinds of left. I mean, of course, Arauz is the candidate of the former president, Rafael Correa, who was really kind of a charter member of that Pink Tide group in the 2000s that included figures like uh, Lula and, and Chavez and Evo Morales. Whereas Jacob Perez, you know, he represents something new. He is an indigenous leader. Uh, he has made, quote-unquote, anti-extractivism uh, one of the main pillars of his candidacy. He's an environmentalist. He's a water rights uh, guy, leader. So uh, he's also a member of the indigenous community and kind of represents them. And so it's it's going to be fascinating to see this election play out over the next couple of weeks. Uh, it, it's been interesting for me to 
kind of watch what I call the Telesur left, um, this group of people that, you know, really wants to see Maduro and Maduro aligned leaders succeed at all costs, in their cannons on Yak kind of all these. Um, we'll see whether it sticks. Uh, it's it's going to be a, a really interesting race that may show us, I think, you know, I think either way, I think it's going to show us a new kind of left. Because I also, Arauz comes from a younger generation. He's in his 30s. And even though he'll be very associated with Korea, what we've seen over the years with the election of these proxies is that there's only one president. There can only be one president. And these, these people, like whether it's Christina Kirchner or Evo Morales or originally, you know, on the right with Alvaro Ribe when Juan Manuel Santos was first elected and he thought, Santos was going to more or less follow his path, and, and then Santos went in a different direction. You never really know until these people get into office, and then they discover that they have a lot of power. Yeah. Brian, many of us work on, on development issues, and um, I wonder what your experience has been regarding multilateral and regional development organizations. Do they actually play a significant role in the region? Or do they largely, at the end of the day, represent the interests of um, El Gran Norte? Well, that's that's an interesting question, and I I, I think that I, I personally, like my own politics, I, I we've seen a lot of good over really the last seventy years um, since the end of World War II, produced by these multilateral organizations. Uh, they've they've contributed to the relative peace and prosperity that we've seen during that time. But, you know, 70 years is a long time. Um, it's a system that is uh, fraying, has been fraying for many years. Uh, I remember, I mean, I was based in Brazil in the early 2010s when there was some discussion of uh, Brazil was, of course, pushing for a reform of the UN Security Council. Uh, they wanted to be a member um, there was talk at that point that maybe India would become a member as well. But every time we've tried to reform those Bretton Woods institutions, it hasn't, it hasn't really worked out. Um, I think there are efforts to see a, uh, or the, the possibility that we'll see a renaissance of those groups now with, uh, with the Biden administration. He has spoken openly about his desire to resusc resuscitate organizations like not only the UN, but the World Bank, the IMF, perhaps the OAS uh, as well. Um, but it's going to be tough because for that to happen, the region, and here sort of looking at things more narrowly through the lens of Latin America, Latin America has to be on board. And the, you know, one of the open secrets of the last four years was that many governments around Latin America really kind of liked the approach to Donald. They liked the um, kind of the transactionalism. So, you know, are for these multilateral organizations or, or a greater role for them if it means that it's going to take their own sovereignty off the table, especially if, as you say, they see them ultimately as tools of the global north. I, I think that, you know, we will see a relative, a relative strengthening of those groups. If they're smart, um, they'll pair that, and by they, I mean the organizations, will pair that with, with the need for reform because it, you know, it's, it's not 1947 anymore. It's time to bring some of these groups into the modern day and reflect the world as it is now. And that'll ultimately help 
us steer away from this nationalist moment that we've been in, which I, I think is brings so many dangers. I mean, I, just to cite one very obvious example, this go it alone approach has compounded, uh, has made the pandemic problem worse uh, because it, there's there's been so little coordination. That's right. Brian, someone uh, with your background, um, I think it would be really interesting to get your views on what does the media landscape in Latin America look like today in terms of trends, major players, new players, new developments. And I wonder if you could compare based on your journalistic experience, having been in Brazil, Argentina, and Mexico, how those th three countries differ or compare in terms of um, uh, their editorial tradition or excellence. Well, to begin with, media all over the world, but particularly in Latin America, are under duress right now because of the commercial forces that I'm sure everybody in, in your audience knows about, uh, the migration to the online space, the collapse of print advertising. But that's also been compounded by some other trends, including um, you know, the rise of social media, uh, governments that openly attack or uh, so on. And, uh, to use was the world's most dangerous place to be. That's that's uh, some people because they they think of places in the Middle East or or maybe authoritarian countries like China as being more dangerous. But but Mexico, sad distinction and conditions are high uh, in of Central the Northern Triangle countries of Central America and so on. At the same time, I just you know and this is a, a world that I'm very close to. I just see tremendous bravery. I see journalists uh, sometimes very distant from the capitals uh, in places like rural Mexico, rural Colombia, uh, challenging environments like El Salvador and Honduras. You, you still just see remarkable journalists doing courageous work, uh, shining a light on organized crime, on government corruption, and so on. So I don't know that there's any other region in the world that combines sort of the the vivacity and the strength of an independent uh, media with, unfortunately, you know, the other side of the equation, which is the violence and the danger that they face. As far as you know, comparing and contrasting Brazil, Argentina, and Mexico, I'll tell you that you know one thing that's always fascinated, fascinated me about, about the Mexican media space and it actually reflects some of these dynamics I was just talking about, is sometimes there are, just me speaking frankly here, sometimes Mexican newspapers I find hard to decipher, um, and that's that's often on purpose. Uh, there's there's a, a custom there of, of not saying things as directly as perhaps their colleagues might in Brazil and Argentina. Some of that is literally survival mechanism. Some of it is, um, some of it may be culture. I, I've heard Mexican journalists sort of explain this by saying that, yeah, they, they'll say, yeah, we're, we're a country where sometimes things are said indirectly. Uh, I'm, you know, I don't know that that's my place to sort of make that comparison, but I, I, that's, that's something that they've said. Um, and, but I, I think in every case, I think you have people under extreme duress facing uh, shrinking salaries and, and the threat of violence, doing really important work. I, I'm, I'm a big admirer of, of so many of these outlets and so many of these journalists. Brian, as, um, as the editor of America's Quarterly, um, 
what are you looking at in terms of emerging stories? What are projects that um, maybe even some of our listeners may want to pick up as um, as possible research topics? What, looking at at the region, what is out there that um, you as an editor would point to as um, substantial um, issues to look at? Well, we just published a new issue on organized crime and how it's changing amid the pandemic. And, you know, we, we look at things usually with, we try to be optimistic. Man, I'll tell you, this was, this was a tough topic to be optimistic about because what we see happening is organized crime groups, including the PCC, which is based in Brazil, um, uh, groups like the MS-13 in, in El Salvador and the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico are really thriving, unfortunately, right now. They are uh, seeing greater recruitment among the mass of youth that is uh, jobless and unemployed right now and, and also um, you know, shut out of school, literally, uh, because schools at the end of 2020, 97% of Latin American schools or rather Latin American students remain physically outside the classroom. Some of them were doing remote learning, but the vast majority um, were, were not with their teachers. Uh, that's posing challenges everywhere, but nowhere is, is it more of a challenge than it has been in, in Latin America. Um, so that, that, was, that was a dark picture. Um, they're, they're, they're seeing greater recruiting they are uh, taking advantage of governments that are distracted by the pandemic itself. Um, and, and, and also the fact that some governments uh, are, are just not making it a priority. Um, and that, that's a story that's been around for the better part of 40 years. Of course, demand from the consumer markets, mainly the United States, is a huge part of the story. But I think it's something that we're just now starting to understand and get our head around. And I think we're going to see the consequences of that from for, for years to come. Um, yeah. Looking forward, we're, we're actually our next issue is going to be looking at the Amazon. This is another, you know, another huge uh, area of interest, I think, for the world. We're trying to figure out um, how to cut back on this increase in deforestation that we've seen in not only in Brazil, but in Bolivia and a couple of the other countries that have Amazon territory as well. And I, you know, I think part of the conversation is gonna to have to be around sustainable, uh, sustainable growth, sustainable economic development, uh, because conservation is hugely important. Uh, deforestation has to stop. But it's also true that if the world just kind of talks to Brazil and these other countries about what they cannot do without offering a development alternative for the more than 35 million people who live in the Amazon, um, those those discussions are probably not going to go anywhere. Um, you know, to take one specific example, Bolsonaro is more popular in the Amazon right now, in the, sort of the northern region of the country, than he is anywhere else. Um, and that's because people there see him as standing up for their jobs, uh, for their right to work and enrich their families. And um, the tragedy of that is that deforestation is, is not good for those folks. It's not good for them economically. It's not good for them environmentally. But there has to, you know, there has to be an alternative. The good news is that with, with things like, uh, with some technological innovation, uh, there, there are areas, uh, agricultural exports and so on. Not, I'm not referring to soy. I'm referring to things like acai, 
uh, cocoa, um, this wonderful Amazonian fish called the pirarucu uh, that really might help uh, improve the lives of people who live there if they can be scaled up. But this is, a, this is an area that still needs more research. Um, we're diving into it right now in AQ, but it's, it's gonna continue to, to be a subject, I think, of intense interest uh, for developmentalists, uh, for scientists, for agronomists, and others in, in, in years to come. Brian, in line with our tradition here at EconoPolitics, we can't let you leave without one or two recommendations and knowing your gourmet credentials. Recommendations based on your personal experience in the region. Um, what would you recommend? Oh, in, in terms of things I, I like to eat. Well, well, well like to eat or, or places to visit. In terms of, uh, that, I, that I like to go to. Yeah, uh, either places that. Well, that... as anyone who, who who follows my as anyone who follows my Twitter feed knows, uh, I have rebelled against my inability to travel to Latin America over the last year by cooking everything I possibly can. I I have you know I was always uh, a, I'm I'm a I cook uh, in my spare time. It's a big hobby in part because it gives me something else to do with my hands besides sit at a keyboard and write all day. Um, and it also in part, just because that's the way that I've experienced Latin America over these last 20 years. I'm a huge foodie. And I, I've done a little bit of everything. I, I, we make moqueca jipeche at the winter house at least once a week. Uh, that's that wonderful Brazilian fish stew that right. usually has a coconut milk uh, base. So we make a lot of that. I've also made, you know, sudado de pescado, the Peruvian dish. We went on a huge taco kick um, through a lot of 2020 um uh, gosh i mean I've, I've tried to jump on the birria uh craze as well which i know is is all the rage on instagram and and elsewhere uh i do make uh brazilian churrasco as well we have a brazilian supermarket that's just two miles down the road from our house where you can get picanha which my brazilian friends think is sacrilege um uh, that, that's, that's what we've managed to do. Right. Yeah. And um, I don't know if off the top of your head, you would have any recommendations of actual places to go in the region that you've, um, that you, that you've supported in the past or that you'd like to run back as soon as you can. Um, I, I have lots of places that I love. There's my favorite. One of my favorites is a place called Mokoto. Uh, in Sao Paulo, which is actually kind of near the airport. It's off the beaten path. It's not on the Jardim's Itaim, Eugenopolis right. circuit there. Um, right. But it, it is a, of course, Mokoto is, is the cow's hoof stew that is a, a famous Brazilian dish that not everybody has the stomach for, although I would note that my then five-year-old daughter took to it with great relish when we first took her there back in the day. Um, but they have wonderful, wonderful traditional food. Uh, tapioca there is great. Um, and I just, I just miss all the things that I cannot do at home, uh, whether it's because of lack of ingredients and so on. It's just a reminder that we can, you know, we can substitute with these Zoom calls and podcasts and, and other things for only for so long. And, and, you know, if you're somebody like me who loves the region and loves to travel and loves to try and eat new things. I think we're all chopping at the bit, sometimes literally to get back on the road so we can, we can, you know, we can eat well again and also see our friends. Right. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Brian. This has been a fantastic uh, conversation. We hope to get you back here again sometime soon. Um, and for everyone else, please check in again next week when we'll have Ken Shadlin from LSE speaking with us about big pharma in the region. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at EconoPolls or Laza EconPoll and follow Brian's gastronomic adventures at Brazil Brian. So until then, stay well, stay safe. <laughs>